This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 18, Atlanta Fire Department. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week, I want to get right into my topic because I have a lot of information to share. One of my constant struggles, and I think this goes for anyone that creates anything, um, is not doing it perfectly. And this happens to me every week. I know there are experts I can interview or primary sources that I should be scouring, but at the end of the day, I'm a single mom with two jobs. So I'm doing the best that I can, and I have to understand that my goal is not to give every single piece of information I really just want to get people interested and intrigued and push them to go explore and learn on their own. So I'm still learning, but this is my passion and I love it. So I want to say that when I do get the winning lottery ticket, trust me, perfect episodes are coming. All that being said, this week the stars aligned and I was able to meet with an expert and fellow history nerd to help with today's episode. One of my favorite parts about having this podcast is that it's been introducing and connecting me with other history lovers in the city and beyond. And some people just send kudos once in a while, and some people send me full episode suggestions with links and other goodies, and I love that. Uh, I have two listeners that are Atlanta firemen, Danny and Chip, and they're always really supportive. They are at Station 16 and Station 4. Honestly, I was surprised because I didn't think firefighters were part of my listening audience. But it turns out that many of them are history buffs, and there's even an Atlanta Fire Department historian. So a huge thank you to Chip for connecting me with former Chief Joe Talbert. The Chief graciously invited me into his home, where I spent almost three hours learning all about Atlanta's Fire Department and his own family story. He comes from a long, long line of Atlanta firemen. His great-great-grandfather, great-grandfather, grandfather, and father were all Atlanta firemen, and he was as well, and now his son is one too. There are even uncles and cousins, but I don't even have enough time to put them all in the episode. Um, also, if you kind of know the big fires of Atlanta, so his grandfather responded to the 1917 fire, his father responded to the Weinkauf fire, which I think is episode three, I talked about that, And then Joe himself led the rescue from the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill fire. So anyway, I'm going to talk about a lot of these fires in their own episodes, so I didn't get too much into the actual fires today. If that was not enough, Joe Talbert is also the City of Atlanta Fire Department historian, and at his core, he's a history lover and a lover of Atlanta. I'm not sure if anyone has ever experienced this, but when you spend time with a person who's also passionate about the same things you are, it's just a really soulful experience. So if I haven't given it away yet, this week's episode is all about Atlanta's fire department. We're going to talk about its early history as volunteers, becoming official, equipment and animals used, a few famous fires, and then what tangible history we still have left. To start with, let's discuss a general history on fire departments in the United States, which is actually very scant in our early years. Wooden homes and roofs were a clear and early issue in new cities, and as far back as 1648, the governor of New Amsterdam, you may know it now as New York City, assigned fire wardens to inspect chimneys. By 1678, the first fire engine company in the United States went into service, 
And we would not have government-run fire departments until after the Civil War. If you've ever watched a historical film set in New York in the mid-1800s, and I'm mostly talking about Gangs of New York, um, they have the scene where the volunteer fire brigades are literally fighting each other to get to the fire first, because only the company that first connects to that hydrant would get paid. I asked Joe about this, and that did not happen in Atlanta, so we were much more organized here. Atlanta is essentially born in 1836, when the original end of the line for the railroad was chosen at a spot in downtown. By 1839, John Thrasher has built a home and a general store, and the settlement is started to be called Thrashersville. Fires are not yet a real issue, because there's really just not a lot of buildings or people. But if a fire did occur, we were fighting them with bucket brigades. If you don't know what that is, it's a literal line of people holding buckets, passing them along from one to the other until that first person in line extinguishes the fire. Atlanta is officially named so in 1847, and by the following year, the city council forms a committee to investigate the issues of fire in this new town. Residents are ordered to keep fire buckets in their home, and a fire bucket is a red bucket that held sand or water that you would keep in your house in case of like a small household fire. Things changed by around 1850. Before then, there had yet to be a really big fire in this new city of ours, but on April 15th, a huge fire would destroy all of the holdings of Augustus Wheat. Now, I mentioned him very, very briefly in the episode about um, Wheat Street Baptist when talking about that church. Our current Auburn Avenue was originally named Wheat Street after German merchant Augustus Wheat. Robbers had set a fire to create a distraction while they robbed the money drawer in the Georgia Railroad Freight Depot. And unfortunately, the fire spread to wheat store, warehouse, livery stable, and even several horses died that were owned by him. Now, these buildings were all on Alabama Street, which is now underground Atlanta. This fire catapulted the formation of the first volunteer fire course in Atlanta. The idea of volunteer firefighting may sound odd to some people, but funny enough, the idea of paid firemen sounded weird to me until I became an adult. I believe that currently at least 70% of the United States firefighters are volunteer departments, and that's mainly in rural areas. I grew up in upstate New York, in a town that very literally had one traffic light when we moved there, so our fire department was and still is staffed by volunteers. And I remember being a little shocked when I grew up and learned that you could be paid to be a firefighter. In 1851, the Volunteer Atlanta Fire Company No. 1 is chartered. Their station is housed down on Alabama Street, which again, pretty much underground Atlanta. In total, there would be six volunteer fire departments in the years from 1850-ish to 1882. These units would not be numbered, but they instead would be named. So Chief Talbert's great-grandfather John was part of a volunteer unit that was named Tallulah. Another volunteer fireman you may have heard of, John Henry Holiday, or you may know him as Doc. Yep, Doc Holiday, who, by the way, I had no idea was born in Georgia. Um, he was born in Griffin, but he was a practicing dentist in downtown Atlanta, but also a fireman on truck number one. And if you need proof... I have a photo of him on the website. It's archiveatlanta.com, episode 18, and you can find it there. Let's talk for a moment on the actual logistics of firefighting in these early days. For the first 20 so years of volunteer, hoses are literally being pulled through the streets manually by people. 
We would not see horses introduced until the 1860s. Initially, water was held in wells, sort of stationed around the city. After the war in the 1870s, the city finally installs pipes and waterways, and then that gave us fire hydrants. So you pull up to a hydrant, you stick the hose in, you're ready to go. Speaking of the war, the destruction after the Civil War really did a number on our very small volunteer fire department. Union forces destroyed all of the fire apparatuses in the city, and there was really a lot of rebuilding to be done to get things back in order. In the decades after the Civil War, there are concerns rising that there's just too many fires to expect unpaid volunteer force to deal with. So men would be in the middle of working their, you know, quote-unquote day jobs, and at the sound of a bell, drop everything to risk their lives to save a burning building. The press ends up taking up this cause, and they really stress the need for a paid fire department as well as a fire alarm telegraph. In 1882, the amendment to the city charter passes, and our first official paid fire department is formed. We started with two stations, and all of the original equipment is purchased from the volunteer units. The first paid fire chief is named Matthew Ryan, who, according to records, made a whole $100 a month. Matthew was an Irish immigrant, and that's really a surprising thing I learned most about these early Atlanta firemen. So many of them were immigrants from Ireland, Germany, other places. And I think for me, Atlanta's just not a city I associate with European immigrants. That's just, you kind of give that to New York or Chicago. So it was really cool to read where all these people were from. Also, cool bonus story, Mr. Ryan is supposedly buried in an unmarked grave at Oakland Cemetery. I mentioned the push for the fire alarm telegraph, and I want to explain this to you guys because it is so cool. Chief Talbert actually demonstrated this live for me because he has two Atlanta fireboxes. So the way this works is every corner in Atlanta has a firebox. Some boxes are small, um, and I have photos of the two that Joe owns. The small one he has is from 1882. And then some are tall, kind of like a mailbox. Each box is numbered. So you discover a fire, you run to your little mailbox, open the door, and pull the alarm. And the box immediately begins making a humming noise. And then if you listen really closely, you can hear Morse code being typed out. The message is transmitted to the desk at the fire department where the person on watch receives the box number. Next, he looks down at his chart. If the box number corresponds with his station, he'll sound the alarm. If it's another station, then they kind of relay the message to them. I have a video of this process in action because he has it set up this way um, and I'll have it on my Instagram and Facebook stories so you can see how it all works. It just blew my mind. If you're wondering how a responding department would call for backup, the fireman carried a brass telephone with him and that would plug directly into the box. Once connected, he's able to send his own Morse code message for more units. There were 1,200 fireboxes in use throughout the city at the height of popularity, and the craziest part is they were around till 1986. When the city of Atlanta removed these fireboxes, they offered them for sale to a smaller city. I can't remember. It was East Point. But at this point, the technology is a little outdated, and then sadly, these were all sold or destroyed for scrap. Cue the tears. Joe has two in his collection, the small one, and the large one is from the 1920s. Now, let's talk about horses. I briefly mentioned them earlier, and this is probably my favorite part of the Atlanta Fire Department history that I learned in this research. 
Did you know there was a recruitment school for horses before there was one for firemen? So think about it. A training a horse to jump at the sound of a bell, suit up with heavy equipment, and traverse the cobblestone streets towards a fire. That was hard to find a horse to do that. Most of the horses came out of Amish country, and their job was dependent on their size. Obviously, the bigger ones are pulling the heaviest wagons. Um, You know, smaller ones are in different positions. All of these horses were kept in a fire department building in the West End, and Chief Talbert told me that it is the low building behind station number seven. So station number seven is at 535 Whitehall Street. Um, You can kind of Google map it, but I drove by the other day. It's really cool to see it in person. It took a pretty bad picture for you, but I'm going to put that on the website as well. The person in charge of all the Atlanta Fire Department horses was called a hostler. And all of Mr. Talbert's ancestors were hostlers. He said that many times, especially in those early volunteer years, you were recruited for your knack and knowledge with horses. So not so much like this burning desire to be a fireman. It was like, hey, you're really good with horses. We need your help. They were such a large part of the total job and being able to care for them and work them was essential. The Atlanta History Center has a horse registry, which records every horse ever owned by the city's fire department. My favorite little tidbit is that the last surviving horse was named White Sox, and he lived out his retirement out on a farm in East Lake Meadows, dying in the 1930s. Horses were pulling steamer wagons, and the way this system worked required a lot of manpower. So imagine a fire call comes in, the horses instinctually stand up in place, get suited up, and they're pulling three separate wagons. One contains the steam engine, essentially the power that propels the water. The second wagon is the coal wagon, which you need to supply the steam engine. And the third wagon contains the fire hose. So you couldn't fit them all in one. And this visual gives you a better understanding or appreciation for the big deal that motorized fire engines were when they introduced them department-wide. Just the cost savings alone was like $27,000 a year. The Atlanta Fire Department motorizes in 1918, just one year after the Great Fire of 1917. Now, I don't want to go too much into the details of the specific fire because it deserves and will have its own episode, but the city had not seen this much destruction since Sherman marched through at the end of the war. This fire took out 73 square blocks, more than 300 acres, um, almost 2,000 buildings, 1,900 homes, and it left 10,000 of Atlanta's residents homeless. So yeah, you can see why it's getting its own episode, right? A huge factor in keeping them from really fighting this fire effectively was first wooden building material, so everything is made of wood, but also it's the last fire of the day, and so the horses are tired and overworked, and it's hard to get resources to the fire. This is why by 1918, almost a year to the day, the city's fleet was motorized. These new engines came from New York, and I read an account that said they were painted bright red lacquer with yellow wheels. Joe had a great historical panorama picture that showed the entire fleet lined up in Piedmont Park, so I took a few pictures of that I'm going to put on the episode show notes. So far, I have yet to mention specific stations, and there's a great report from 2013 that was done by um, someone named Mike Legros. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you guys, but it has the location and kind of a short history of each station and the dates it went in service. 
Now, keep in mind, it's a six-year-old document, so at this point, some of the information is outdated, but it's really helpful to see it all together. Today, I want to mention the most historic stations that still exist, my favorite station, and some places that aren't fire stations anymore, but you can still visit to get some lunch. The first iteration of Station 1 was down on Market and Alabama Streets, again, what is currently underground Atlanta. It would move about four different times before finding its current home in Castleberry Hill, and that was about 1961. This is the second busiest station in Atlanta, and I recommend a visit not for the building, but for the bell. And you might be going, a bell? So yeah, there is a bell outside, close to the ground, Um, really nondescript, nothing too much telling you what it is. But that bell arrived in Atlanta in 1867 during the volunteer era. In 1892, it rang from the tower of the fire department headquarters, which stood at 44 West Alabama Street. The funds to purchase the bell were raised by a week-long, quote, ladies' fire bell fair, end quote. And at that fair was a voting contest to have your name inscribed either on a steam engine for the winner or the bell, the runner-up. So Augusta Hill came in second, thus her name is forever inscribed on the bell. She's said to be the most beautiful woman in Atlanta, and she is also buried at Oakland Cemetery because it wouldn't be an episode of Archive Atlanta if I did not mention a cemetery at least two times. I'm going to venture to say that the most well-known fire station in Atlanta is the historic Station 6. This is the building at the corner of Boulevard and Auburn Avenue, sandwiched between the King Center and the King Birth Home. It's the only remaining 19th century firehouse in Atlanta. Built in 1894, it has a little mini fire department museum. I use that term a little loosely, but it does have a replica of the telegraph system that I talked about earlier, so do go check that out. I recommend a visit, but keep in mind that as of today's release date, we still have a government shutdown. Station 6 is contained within the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Park, So give it a few weeks before you try to go down there, but the outside of the building is really pretty as well. Station 6 was closed to fire service in 1991 because the building was a little bit deteriorating, and so the engine was moved to Station 4, which is in the neighborhood down on Edgewood. Now this confused me. Engine 6 still exists, but it lives in Station 4, so... I don't know. It took me a while. But Engine 6 itself is the busiest engine in the city of Atlanta. Now, Station 7, mentioned that just before um, where the horse building was behind it, recently renovated a few years ago and reopened by the city as a working fire station. It's in the West End on Whitehall Street, and it originally opened in 1910. So officially, it's the oldest active station But there's a little discrepancy there because you account for the fact that it was closed for a few years. Now, Station 11 is one that Chief Talbert knows very well since he rose through three fire department ranks from that firehouse. Now, the general public may know it a little better as the Jamaican restaurant called Negril Village. Standing at 30 North Avenue, the station was built in 1907, and that was the first responding station to the Weinkauf Fire, which, again, is from Episode 3. It closed in 1996, same year that the Olympics came to Atlanta, and I think it was a a bar, maybe another restaurant, but it's been the Jamaican restaurant for at least the last five years. And speaking of restaurants and fire stations, there is a newish barbecue restaurant on the west side called Four Rivers Smokehouse. 
That is in Station 16, which was built in 1915 and stayed in service until 1963. Now, I have seen this confusion appear on the interwebs before, but this is not the same Station 16 that housed the first African-American firefighters. The story of black firefighters in Atlanta begins in 1962. Or does it? Like everyone else, I read and reread the same story. Mayor Ivan Allen authorizes the hiring of black firemen in 1962, and in 1963, 16 African-American men start their first day on the job. But when I met with Chief Talbert, he showed me a picture that blew my mind. It's from 1887, showing Volunteer Hook and Ladder Company Number 1 in front of their station house on Broad Street downtown. The truck was the first aerial ladder truck for Atlanta, and if you look at the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see Henry Lewis, and Henry's black. He has the same uniform on as the rest of the white firemen, and it turns out he was a hostler, which probably explains why he's standing right next to the horse. I mean, that blew my mind because I didn't know about it, and I think it's a special picture. I took a photo um, of the book where he had it, and I put that on social media and on the website for you guys to see. So let's fast forward in time to those 16 African-American firemen hired in 1963. Even though they integrated the department, they didn't integrate the station itself. They actually built Station 16 specifically for these new black firemen. And it's located at 1048 Joseph E. Boone Boulevard in the Washington Park neighborhood. Now, the captain, drivers, and the lieutenant are white. So an African-American lieutenant would not appear until 1971. And I think women were not hired until 1977 or 78. Um, and the first seven women on the fire department were actually seven black women. Fun little bonus story about Station 16. It is built on the site of the home of Tiger Flowers. Theodore Flowers was the first black boxer to win the world middleweight championship. His home in Atlanta was the most luxurious in the city. And when he died, his funeral in the city auditorium had 7,000 mourners inside and 75,000 people filing past to see his coffin. I know this is way off topic, but I love the story of Tiger Flowers, and I really have to figure out how to get into its own episode. And finally, the last historic fire station I will mention, station number 19 in Virginia Highland. Because this was never closed, it's technically the oldest operating fire station in the city built in 1925. I think it's a little bit more well-known because if you've ever been drinking in the Highlands, you definitely see it because it's right on the corner there. There are, of course, many other fire stations, over 30 in total. And even though they are not all historic, the firefighters of the city provide an invaluable service and put their lives on the line to protect the citizens and protect the property of the city. The current work schedule of a firefighter today is 24 hours on and 48 hours off and almost all of them work second jobs. I asked one of my fireman buddies what we can do to show appreciation, and he said one word, cookies. So there you have it, people. The long story of Atlanta's fire department, the people, places, and the animals that made it happen. Next time you're strolling past your neighborhood station, stop in and express your appreciation, or better yet, bring them some cookies. I want to thank Chief Joe Talbert again for his time and his stories and Chip and Danny for the extra information and connections and answering all my questions. If you're enjoying the podcast, share it with others. And if you can, leave a rating or a review. It helps the show come up for others to discover. 
If you'd like to know more about a specific story in Atlanta, send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. I would love to be able to cover what you've always wanted to know more about. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I will talk to you next week. 